you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where we welcome holiday greetings from our robot overlords. This year has been a little crazy for the Andersons. You may recall we had some trouble last year. The robot council had us banished to an asteroid that hasn't undermined our holiday cheer. And we know it's almost Christmas by the marks we make on the wall. That's our favorite time of year. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime, where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi again, my name is Sean Engel, and it's my job on this podcast to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rainer. This time in the Green Lantern book, we're covering a Kyle Rayner story that deals with robots on a planet pretty much inhabited by robots. Oh, and fat guys who look like Mojo from the X-Men. Yeah, it's Jim Starlin art, so that's kind of neat. It's a change, but it does definitely smack of inventory story. However, we've also got an issue of Green Lantern Core Quarterly, which... In general, would be pretty cool because there's Alan Scott stories and Nort stories in there, and this time there's neither of them. They are replaced with stories about abject feminism, written by men in a really unappealing manner. Plus, there's a story that deals with a Green Lantern Oprah analog. Yeah, if I haven't scared you guys off with that comment, I don't know what would. But please, don't turn off the podcast and go find something else to listen to. Please finish listening because we've got podcast promos to do, some emails, and then a look at Green Lantern number 95 right after we get back from this break. So stay tuned, folks. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime, where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. From Chiron Beta Prime. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Okay, wow, sorry I'm late. Let's see, what do we got here? Wow, this, this is a lot more stuff than last time. All this for a new promo for Trendus Magnus Punches Reality? Okay, whatever. No, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm ready. Let's just bash through this. I got a plane to catch. 
It's for this year's Golden Headset Awards. Uh, word is my auditory orgasm of a podcast has been nominated for basically everything. And because it's me, we all know I'm going to win. So I really can't be late for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let, let's roll it. Let's roll it. Prentice Magnus punches reality. Listen as Magnus discusses comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's like porn for your ears. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's where awesome and epic go to relax after a long day. Trentus Magnus punches reality. After all, a million monkeys at a million typewriters can't be wrong. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because deep down inside, you know Magnus is right. Trentus Magnus punches reality. The People's Comic Book Podcast. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because fuck you, that's why. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at magnus.libson.com. Okay, great. Are we good? We good? We got everything? All right, great. Thanks a lot. Whatever your name is. Bye. And we are back. So let's go ahead and do what we always do now. Take a look at the Just One of the Guys email bag and see what kind of letters have been written in this time. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and once again, we've got a letter from my good friend to the Great White Norse, Mr. Scott Davis. His letter is entitled Greenlander number 83 through 87. He starts out running, Hi, Sean. The Great White North is getting chilly these days. I'm doubling up on the Tim Hortons coffee to get me through the cold nights. Has any Canadian Arctic air hit Oklahoma yet? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago we had a pretty good cold snap. Some snow and ice, which is... Eh. It let the kids out of school a couple of days, so that was fun for them. He writes, uh, Greenlander number 83, Retribution Part 1. You're right, Kyle blatantly misuses his power by sinking the ship in the harbor. Thanks for nothing, Kyle. Now we have to clean up that mess. Yeah, not really helping out with the uh, public trust there, eh, Kyle? And wow, Fatality enters the issue with a bang. She's wearing a strange 90s outfit, but she's definitely hot. Mm-hmm. I had to take a cold shower after a stripper dance with Kyle. Well, that, that makes two of us, then. The cliffhanger at the end of the issue threw me off. I would thought for sure that Fatality was going to find Donna and kill her, but the reveal at the end that she was going to steal Kyle's land battery was a bit uneventful. Greenlander number 82, Retribution Part 2, was a good issue, he said. I liked the character development of Fatality, especially with her flashback scenes. Poor John has the Zanshi exploding planet scene again. Yeah, he's he gets that a lot. Oh, he'll never get away from that part of his life in these comics. Sean, thanks for the artery lesson. Now I'm freaked out about ever getting a small cut near my shoulder. Well, don't worry about small cuts. It's large, jabbing, pointed knives that you don't want to get near your shoulder. There's a big artery there. You cut that, you're going to bleed out pretty darn quick. Uh, Scott continues, The huge yellow spaceship blasting in the warehouse was ridiculous. I like the nice cliffhanger your ending, though, with Kyle disappearing in the mud. Is this the end of Kyle? Well, obviously not, because we've got Greenlander number 85, Retribution Part 3. Why the H-E double hockey sticks would Kyle rat John out to fatality about the destruction of Zanshi? I have no idea. Heat of the moment, maybe. And not the Asia song, just in the heat of the moment. In this area of Western Canada that I grew up, you would get your ass kicked if you did that to a friend. Well, maybe Canadians aren't all that nice. That's that's interesting to know. This speaks volumes to the immaturity of Kyle at this point in his, in his life. I thought it was funny that Fatality conveniently pulls the Lander out of the mud just in time for Kyle to get it back again by the end of the issue. On page 21, I also didn't know that it was Fatality's severed arm in the mud, but if you go to the next page, they explain it there. Overall, I really enjoyed these issues with Fatality. Green Lantern number 86, he says, the battle with the Asian gang was that was trying to kidnap the girl was strange to begin the issue. Yeah, I 
didn't get that either. It was there's a big trouble in Little China reference I don't think really worked too well. He continues. Kyle was not worried about, or uh, was Kyle not worried about why she was being kidnapped? It's strange that he just left her there for the next gang to kidnap her. And, uh, there's just roving gangs uh, of kidnapping Asian people, I guess, in Chinatown. So there you go. Uh, not only is Kyle's art bad, but so is his taste in music. He's giving Cleveland a stabbing Western CD while he's getting back John Coltrane. Embarrassing. I like Jade's character already. The shower scene was great. Mm Mmm. Let's admit that we all knew Donna was going to show up at the end of this issue. Well, yeah, I guess you could kind of imagine that happening. Here we go again with the relationship drama. Greenlander number 87. Weird that Access shows up in this issue. (laughs) weird that Access even showed up anywhere at all. I think, like I said, other than like a Spider-Man issue, he was pretty much done with uh, after the whole DC versus Marvel thing went on. I won't pursue this character at all, but Jade looks amazing on page three. Cal's definitely going to have trouble keeping his hands off of her. And what the heck happened to Superman? He looks like an icicle. Yeah, yeah, that was the electric blue costume thing. It was a containment suit that kept his body from dissipating into the I don't know you'll have to ask Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor about that Martian Manhunter is a great character and I hope to see more of him in the future Ugh. on page 15 we get reminded again that poor John Stewart blew up Sanchi the quote from Martian Manhunter the last time I trusted a Green Lantern an entire world died thanks again for the reminder John good, good issue and nice appearance of Mogo at the end yeah, I like that issue. Uh, I wish I could have had Frank on for that, but uh, uh, Frank is probably busy writing extensive emails to the Fire and Water podcast, so I'll, I'll I'll let him stay and do some of that. Scott finishes off, I don't know if you picked up any comics from DC's Villains Month, but in September there was a one-shot called Justice League 23.2 Lobo. I was just curious what you thought about the new Lobo. I picked it up and was pretty impartial, to tell you the truth. I don't know if DC has any further plans with the character. I think Lobo is a character that only works in the 90s, kind of like Guy Gardner and his warrior thing. Although Guy Gardner's stories were, in my humble opinion, a lot better, the Lobo stories were just taking, well, basically taking the mick out of the entire 90s aesthetic. And I keep using that word. I need to expand my vocabulary, but basically the 90s feel were emulated in the character of Lobo. But Scott finishes up with, talk to you soon, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you writing in. It's always great to hear from you. Uh, Keep warm up there in the Great White North and have some more Tim Hortons coffee. I've heard it's delicious. Our next email comes from the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who can't stand the White Power Ranger, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and his uh, letter is entitled, But What About Torture? Well, thankfully, we don't have to endure any of that. Luke writes in with the title. Well, I already told you the title. Luke writes in with Missive. Sean, really? Invisible Touch from the Genesis album of the same name? Once again, you've managed to choose a song and album, which my father used to play all the time in the car when I was a kid. First to live and die in L.A., now Invisible Touch. If you play Hold Me Now by the Thompson Twins, I'm going to really get scared. Uh, no, no Thompson Twins on the horizon. However, I could probably use uh, Dr. Doctor sometime for a Hoochoo Freak show if you want to do that. Luke continues on. I always like it when characters speak in their own logo. Blame it on the 90s, but I dig it. This Green Lantern issue, however, did not catch my interest. I like to side, all right, and nothing will ever beat his torture of the forever people in their book, where you trap them in an amusement park ride, meaning that his machines work them over, meaning that as his machines work them over, the park goers' laughs and cries of merriment were directed at them the entire time. Yeah. I don't remember a single thing about Genesis, so if it crossed over into the DC books I was reading at the time, it did not make much of an impression. Yeah. I can probably agree with you there. It seems that there, it seems to be more than a handful of these titles of forgotten slash forgettable crossovers from this period of DC Comics. By the way, the film which became Call the Conqueror started out life as Conan Three, supposedly to take place during Conan's reign over the jeweled crown of Aquilonia. Well, that would have been neat. 
Of course, over the development, it uh, ended up evolving into a Cole film, which makes some sense as Cole himself sits on the throne of Volusia. Okay, again. Sorbo does a good job as Cole, but the movie is only average. Agreed. Eh, nothing really to write home with. I did a review back of it back in the day on Elch Cone's Comic Bunker if you're curious, and I'll try and put the link to that in the uh, show notes so you can get to that. Uh, Luke finishes up saying, digging the show, despite the less than stellar couple of issues for Kyle. Keep it up, dude. Well, thank you, Luca. I will keep it up. I've still got, oh, uh, I think right now I'm about at the halfway point. Yeah, I'm a little bit over the halfway point, so it's all downhill from here, I guess. So, well, hopefully it's not downhill in a negative way, but we'll, that remains to be seen. But that does it for emails this time out. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. I really appreciate you writing into the email bag. Uh, the, if you want to write in, of course, the tag at the end will tell you how to do that, or you can just listen right now. It's just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from anyone who's listening out there. It's always great. However, what might be not so great, might just be average, is our coverage of the issue of Green Lantern number 95. Green Lantern 95 was cover dated February 1998 and released on December 10th, 1997. This, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Go check it out and go check out Mike's podcast. It's an interesting look at comic books. Not comic book movies, but comic books. It's fun. The cover price for this baby was $1.85 U.S. and $2.75 Canada. The title was Servants and Masters, which could be misconstrued as a misplaced Depeche Mode song. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Jim Starlin, anchor was Terry Austin, color and separations were Robert Schwager, letter was Chrissy Leopolis, robot servant was Dana Curtin, and evil overlord Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with Green Lantern Kyle Rayner sipping the spaceways toward the planet Inertia Megaplex, a planet that sent out a desperate distress call. Arriving on the world, Kyle finds that the planet is inhabited by mainly various forms of robots, none of whom are too interested in the appearance of the Green Lantern. Thinking all of this was a wild goose chase, Kyle is eventually approached by an automaton who takes him to meet with Overlord Prime. When the unaccommodating android leads Kyle to meet with this overlord character, Kyle flashes back to the apartment, where he was visited by the floaty head of the not-guardian of the universe, but a robot much like the one leading him now. The floaty cyberhead tells Kyle to come to the planet or more will die, and with Kyle being a superhero and stuff, he charges his ring and heads off into space. Back on the planet, Kyle demands some answers to why he was summoned, and the robo-butler tells him that the three of the twelve overlords of this planet have gone missing, and the remaining nine want Green Lantern to find out what happened to the three. Oh, did I mention that the overlords are essentially bloated, shirtless, legless, saucer-floating mojo from the X-Men wannabes? Yeah, there is that. Kyle tells the people of Walmart rejects to find someone else to do their dirty work, but the Overlord reminds Kyle that the whole Green Lantern thingy and being a hero and stuff, so Kyle reluctantly relents. Thinking for some reason that the robot minions couldn't be to blame for the missing Overlords, Kyle heads to the skies to find anything out of the ordinary. And he does, in the form of a spaceship that looks uncomfortably like a device that causes sexual stimulation in females. Kyle slips in the back door, might no, no, he penetrates, he comes inside, no... Ugh. He sneaks into the ship and finds the skeletal remains of the missing of one of the missing overlords. He also finds a giant alien spider who engages him in some fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, until Kyle is able to contain the arachnid in a ring construct cube. Wondering what he's going to do with a creepy caller, Kyle gets a telepathic message from the alien telling him that the death of the overlords was to help the many, and that soon he will find out what that means. Moments later, we see Kyle sitting in the tri-pronged ship as the floaty flat screens of the Overlords approach to make sure that Kyle has disposed of the threat. Kyle tells them that he's not an executioner, and the hover-round inhabitants decide to send all of their robot minions in to take the beastie out. Kyle, of course, denies them entry by taking down the robots in an epic battle sequence. Shocked that all their servants are nothing more than scrap metal, the Overlords follow Green Lantern into the ship and find the dead body of the alien Arachnid. You see, 
the bug was pregnant, and like in Charlotte's Web, after her babies were born, they went about eating her mom. Ugh. And the mom needed food to sustain herself, so she took advantage of the only organic thing on the planet, the fat, floaty overlords. Saying that the alien's last wish was for Green Lantern to return her children to her home, Cal flies off with the babies in tow, leaving the helpless overlords to fend for themselves for the very first time. Yeah. This really wasn't an issue that did anything for me. In fact, it kind of smacked again as an inventory story, one that could have easily had Hal Jordan as the protagonist. I guess it does bring up the fact that Kyle has an entire universe to patrol rather than just Earth, but again, those elements feel more like Green Lantern Corps-level stories rather than Green Lantern stories. I also guess you could also see this as a kind of proto-Wally story as well. Eh. Together with that and the addition of Jim Starlin to the art, which is good and bad, I'll talk about that in a few, and you get a story that just feels out of place and breaks up the flow of the book as an ongoing series, so yeah, not really uh, one of the better ones we've had. But I'll go ahead and head into my notes a little bit here right now, starting with the cover as always, and it's very much a cover that one would expect Jim Starlin to do. There's a lot of detail in the various robots attacking Kyle, but although the robots do look great, Kyle just looks a bit off. He's kind of beefy, his pose is a little awkward, and, well, you know, he just looks different. I don't know if Starlin, who is known for doing his cosmic stuff, I know he did Captain Marvel and Dreadstar over at Marvel Comics, so he should be a, a natural fit for this, but just having Banks and uh, T Banks and Tangal doing it and uh, J Paul Pelletier doing the artwork over here, Seeing Jim Starlin sort of is not really a big difference, but it's enough of a difference that it kind of it takes away from the flow of the artwork of the book, if that makes any sense. Moving into the book on page one, it looks really kind of off here. Uh, Kyle on this page looks incredibly buff. When I think of Kyle, I think of him as sort of a lean, sort of runner-type character. Starlin draws him as an almost bodybuilder here, and he looks really just way too beefy and off. But, eh, it's Starlin, Starlin's artwork. There you go. But however, on the next two pages, two and three, it's a really wonderful two-page splash with just a ton of really neat-looking robots. I mean, a lot of them are very Terminator-esque with very kind of unnecessarily unnecessary joints, you know, connecting their limbs and stuff. There's one that actually looks kind of like a, uh, what would you say, one of those Segway scooters. There's one who's got tank wheels, who's uh, backing up place, and for some reason there's a dog robot around. So I don't know why a world of androids would build an android dog, but there you go. And, and also for some reason, there's also a fat robot. Why in the world would you have a fat robot? I mean, he's just got a big old gut. I guess it's, you know, a neat and different design, but if you're designing robots, wouldn't you want them all to be sort of uniform? You know, at least until you come up with the next model and you upgrade the design, but, you know, did they start out with a tubby robot? Guess we'll never know. Moving on in the book, I like that uh, on page five here, the flashback where the floaty head of the robot comes to contact Kyle, that the uh, panel work is drawn in the symbol of a green lantern, so that's kind of neat aesthetic design. It's just a one-page thing with the lantern symbol outlining it. Then it's essentially a six-panel grid that the borders on the outside are broken up by the symbol of the lantern. So it's a cool it's a cool page, and it's a cool uh, panel construct. Uh, the artwork is decent. Um, again, they're, they're, the second panel here, it looks like Starlin is doing the sort of Kirby hands as well. Kyle's got the Kirby hands, and there's a bit of Kirby Crackle as well behind him as the uh, robot head forms around in his apartment. Page 7, panel 1, we get the introduction of the Overlord Prime, and he is very much a Mojo from the X-Men-like character. I mean, I guess minus the spider legs, but he's still got the uh, 
long sort of talony fingers and he's got sort of a, a what dead shot eye patch as well it's uh it's really i don't know if starlin ever drew mojo in the x-men or drew anything like that but it's obviously what they're aping here plus on this page there are just a ton of fat jokes made by kyle and it's just not really good storytelling uh, you know you understand that this is a race of people who've let themselves go and have allowed their robot minions to do all the work for them but fat jokes uh, it just ron mars is better than that page nine panel three as i kind of alluded to in my commentary or in my synopsis of the book Kyle says in this panel that he thinks that this couldn't have been the robots who killed the overlords. Yeah, because the robots have always been faithful servants, especially in sci-fi tropes like in Robots of Death, iRobot, The Matrix, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, the Green Lantern Manhunters, the Sentinels, Ultron. Do I, do I need to make my point any further? The robots probably did it, Kyle. Take that into consideration. Page 10, panel 1. Oh, Lord. The design of this ship. Yeah, I've... I, uh, it's an uncomfortable design. I've, I've seen these kind of things in specialty shops that you have to be 21 or older to enter, and they have a viewing room in the back with uh, where you can watch some of the videos, and you definitely don't want to touch the floor because it's all sticky with some sort of Ugh, I don't even want to know. I'm trying to keep this family friendly, but this image is just it's a disturbing looking image if you <laughs> if you take into account what it might be looking like, so there you go. Moving on to page thirteen, panel one. Kyle mentions here as he's attacking being attacked by the spider, uh he thinks about Charlotte's web for some reason. This is called foreshadowing, folks. If you don't know what that is, you make a reference to something that will eventually make sense later in the book. That's what they're doing here. Plus, on these panels, it's really weird. The background, supposedly Kyle was fighting this thing inside the interior of this triple-pronged ship. And now it looks like in the background, it's like sunset. Because the colors are sort of a green near the... Uh, horizon then rising up to a sort of yellow and orange so it looks like they went outside and are fighting and it's sundown it's uh it's just kind of weird after that i really don't have all that many notes until about page 18 which is a really nice very detailed splash of kyle in a sort of sword fighting pose with uh his left hand holding a sword up and his right hand uh, in a shield and a sort of helm on with a bunch of these robots coming after him and it really looked like it was aping a certain cover or a certain piece of artwork. And I asked some people on the internet, and uh, Dr. Bill Robinson and J. David Weiner pointed me towards a some images from Dreadstar, which is another comic that Jim Starlin wrote, or uh, not wrote, drew. And a lot of the robots actually look like uh, some of the ones in this panel from Dreadstar. So it may be just Starlin aping a Dreadstar pose with uh, Kyle Rayner, and that may be where I saw this before. Page 19, panel 3. I don't think it was a really smart thing for the Overlords to send all of their robots to attack Green Lantern. <sighs> Look, Overlords, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Then moving on to page 20, panel 3. The whole foreshadowing thing he did with the Charlotte's Web reference here. It pays off on this panel as we see the little baby spiders coming out to eat the mom. Ah, it's lovely, isn't it? The Circle of Life. Awesome. Then finally, to finish up the story, on page 22, it's a kind of a dick move for Kyle to just, you know, bugger off the planet and take the little alien babies back to their planet while letting these fat, tubby, floating guys just fend for themselves. But hey, they're fat, tubby, and bloated, so they deserve all the shame and ridicule they can get, right? Right? No, not really. But that does it for my notes for this one. Uh, not a horrible issue, but just it kind of broke up the story. I think having Jim Starlin in, although he's a great artist, was just it. It smacked of an inventory story. Starlin wasn't the best choice for an artist. He 
disrupts the flow, but it's not as bad as some issues. Definitely not as bad as the alcohol, the Alcoholics Anonymous one we had a while back, and it's definitely not issue 37 bad. I'm still reeling from that. But since we're at the end of the book, why don't we go ahead and take a quick look at some of the ads here. Um, Looking at the front inside cover, we've got the same ad for Mortal, Mortal Kombat Mythology Sub-Zero with a uh, very creepy looking, I guess, Sub-Zero. Who looks like he's uh, just ready to attend a Marilyn Manson concert, so there you go with that. Uh, then we've got uh, on the next... Uh, few pages in, uh, a game called Mass Destruction for the Sega Saturn, Windows 95, and the PlayStation 1. Basically a tank game where you just blow stuff up, so yay, tank games. A few more pages in, we get a two-page splash for a guy in an ice cream truck selling hammers, a wooden sword, tonfas, and nunchucks. I guess it's a way, I guess it's a fighting game for the uh, Sega Saturn called Last Bronx. It looks sort of on the lines of maybe a Virtua Fighter type game. Maybe a little better graphics than the Virtua Fighter, but yeah. I don't think I've ever played this one. Unfortunately, the Sega Saturn was kind of out of my realm when I was in my video game playing days. Then the next ad is for the VHS release of Beavis and Butthead Do America, the uh, the movie of the uh, Beavis and Butthead show. And it was an interesting show. Uh, Beavis and Butthead actually... It was actually kind of a fun movie. It was one of Mike Judge's early movies before he did, I think it was even before he did Office Space. And it had some interesting animation in there from Rob Zombie as well. So, uh, And it was only fourteen ninety five. so uh, that's actually a pretty decent price for a, a pretty good movie. Uh, the animation style was a bit better than what we'd see on the MTV show. And mm, it also had the sort of character that was the prototype of Hank Hill. I'm trying to remember what his name was, but uh, Beavis and Butthead was definitely of its time, and for 15 bucks, it'd be well worth the purchase. Then we get another two-page splash, which is basically of a like four- or five-lane highway with the far left lane being reserved for Sonic the Hedgehog himself, and I guess it's another Sega Saturn game, Sonic R, which I guess is a sort of 3D racing Sonic game. Again, Sega Saturn games I never really played all that much of, so can't really tell you whether this was any good or not. But then the next ad is uh, is another thing of the 90s. It says, The fate of Cyber City rests in your hands, or rests in his hands and yours. It's Cyber Swine, the interactive multipath movie where you control the action. And this was one of these things that kind of came up in the late 90s. It was... The advent of 3D graphics, and it was very, very awkward polygonal graphics, where I guess in this type of game you could choose your own adventure. Uh, I don't know how much replay value that would have. I, I would think maybe just a couple hours of play and you'd be done with it, so... But yeah, 3D uh, cybernetic gun-toting pigs. Yeah, there that was a thing. Then the next ad is for, uh, let's see, what is it? MLB Player's Choice Cards, I guess, or MLB Player's Choice Products. And it's got an image of a sort of tubby little kid in short pants and a striped shirt carrying a, a baseball player. I don't know who it is. Looks like someone from the Baltimore Orioles. I don't know. I don't know baseball. Someone knows who this is. Write in and tell me. But after that, the next ad is, a the galaxy is far, far away. The fighting is up close and personal. It's Star Wars Masters of Terra Cassie. And you would think a Star Wars fighting game where you could either play as uh, Return of the Jedi Luke with his green lightsaber versus Boba Fett, which is what they show in the ad, that that would be a totally awesome thing to do and a really great game to play. But from all... From all sources I've heard of, this is just a really awful, awful fighting game. The mechanics are bad, the moves really don't work, and you'd probably be better off picking up a used copy of Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter, or even Virtua Fighter for that fact. So, yeah, not really one of the best Star Wars games out there. Then the back inside cover has an ad for Tomorrow Never Dies, the uh, new James Bond film, well, New at the time, starring Pierce Brosnan. 
Jonathan Price, Michelle Yao, Terry Hatcher from Lois and Clark, and Joe Don Baker, hey, and Judy Dench. So I guess she was uh, starting her rollout as M for the time. So, yeah, uh, Pierce Brosnan, uh, he was James Bond, wasn't he? Uh, well, he wasn't the worst James Bond, but I don't know if you could call him the best either. But, you know, each Bond has their followers and lovers, so, uh, well, maybe not lovers, that's the... I'll just move on to the next ad. The back outside cover is a very simple ad. It's for the Gap, and it's uh, a Gap uh, Pro Fleece hooded sweatshirt for 48 bucks. Holy cow. You know, the thing is, folks, the Gap and Old Navy are essentially the same store. I'm certain at Old Navy you could get pretty much the same sweatshirt for about half the price. And the only difference would be it doesn't have big G-A-P on the front of it. So, yeah, save yourself some money and shop Old Navy. There you go. I'm doing an ad, and I'm not even getting any money from them. But that covers the book. I'm going to go ahead and go get a drink, take a little break, and play some promos. And when I get back from that, I will go ahead and leap into my coverage of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly number 6. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you're making me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. And as it was before, so it is again. I guess that's an overlong way of saying we're back. Anyway, let's go ahead and hop into our coverage of the book, Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number six. It was cover dated fall 1993 and released on July 20th, 1993. The cover price was $2.95 US, $3.95 Canada, and £2 in the UK. The opening story title was The Book of Equals. The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Jason Pearson, inker was John Dell, letterer Pat Brousseau, colorist Mark McCraw, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Our story opens in the JLI Castle headquarters in London, where Dr. Light, the non-rapey one, and Power Girl, the angry man-hating one, are working out. The two are distracted from their pumping iron by the teleporter arrival of Aresia, who thankfully isn't in her hooker gem outfit quite yet. The orange-skinned model is looking for Green Lantern Hal Jordan in hopes that he can make her a Green Lantern again, and Power Girl spitefully replies that Hal wouldn't let her be in the Green Lantern because she's a woman and Hal's a man and sexism or whatever. Aresia counters by saying there's a lot of women in the core, as she relates it to us in the first story of the book. <sighs> now, this book is a little different than the previous Greenlander quarterly books, in that the opening story actually intersperses between the other stories in the book. It doesn't help, though, that it's the very angry power girl who is just a horrible female stereotype that I really can't stand her. Plus, the art's really scratchy. It's not that appealing. Uh, I don't want to say anything bad about Jason Pearson because I really haven't seen any of his other artwork. I mean, maybe he's much better in this book. Maybe this is rushed, but it's not very good. Plus, there's some 
goofy comic relief character in this story named Chandy, who, when I looked up on uh, the internet, uh, it says she was a JLI character who was supposed to be the reincarnation of the Hindu god Shiva. Okay. Seems she's got energy-based powers, and that's more than enough that I actually want to do when looking up on this character. But, uh... Other than that, I'll just uh, give you some notes on what I thought about the cover. The cover is... It's very nice. It's got a constipated-looking Alan Scott. It's got uh, Harlequin in the background being drawn by Jim Ballant, so you know there's boobs aplenty. In fact, there's even a diamond-shaped boobed window, or diamond-shaped boob window, sorry. Harlequin has really big jersey hair. It's, It's a very 90s cover, but... Eh, I guess, what can you do? The next story in the book is entitled What Price Honor and was written by Ruben Diaz, penciled by Travis Sharest, inked by Ray McCarthy and Abgop Jemdin? Jemdijin? J-E-M-D-J-I-A-N. So, there you go. Lettered by Bob Lappin and colored by Steve Matson. Green Lantern Desmond Farr and his White Tiger Man guys is getting the f*** punched out of him by trainee Lantern, Lara, the daughter of the former Lantern of Sector 112. The Guardians watch as Lara beats her way through a bevy of core members until we get a quick flashback telling about her father becoming Green Lantern, leaving the planet, and eventually dying. The Guardians tell her to stop the slaughter and then tell her that she is to become the next Green Lantern of her sector and to return to her planet. Upon arrival, she meets with creepy, balding exposition man who tells her the person responsible for all the turmoil on the planet is in Castle Evil just a bit down the road. Lara heads to the castle, and upon evading and disabling some of the guards, she faces off with the big bad, the Golden Dragon, who, instead of being a restaurant that serves up delicious Mongolian barbecue, is a guy dressed in head-to-toe in... Wait for it... Yellow Armor! Seeing that, haha, I told you your weapons are useless against me, Lyra goes for the old-fashioned route and jump-kicks the baddie in the face. This, of course, reveals that the Golden Dragon is really... Lyra's Green Lantern father! Deadbeat Dad explains when he tried to use the ring to influence the planet's leaders to stop turning the world into a giant whorehouse, the Guardians took away the ring and Daddy became the Golden Dragon to try and restore goodness and wholesomeness to the globe. Knowing her duty to the core... Lara takes her father down by impaling him with a sword, but doesn't honor his request, finishing him off. Walking away, Lara hears her father reclaim the sword and take his own life. The story wraps off with Lara calling the Guardians and telling him that she'll be their Green Lantern. Oh, and to stop being like jerks. Hmm. This is actually a pretty good story. Uh, this is one of the uh, few stories that actually made it into an animated feature. If you've ever seen the animated movie Emerald, or Green Lantern Emerald Knights, which starred, oh, what's his name? Captain Shiny Pants. Uh, Nathan Fillion as uh, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Uh, this story was adapted for that part of the movie. Uh, I'm not certain if Ruben Diaz was actually credited for it. I think he was, but uh, yeah, it's essentially the same story. Um, it was a decent movie, had some fun stories, and it actually also had an adaptation of the uh, Alan Moore story, Mogo Doesn't Socialize, so that was kind of fun. But from what I remember of the film, uh, the story was the same, except instead of the, the Kuns being a threat to the world, there was some other alien. I'm not really certain. Throughout the story, the art has a very, very 90s feel. In fact, sort of a very Jim Lee 90s feel. Lara, at many times, looks a lot like Psylocke from the X-Men, not only in the way she's drawn uh, her figure and uh, some of her costuming, but also in the way that she moves through the panels. Uh, She's got a lot of high kicks and a lot of karate-type moves or martial arts-type moves don't want to specify it to a specific uh, type of martial art but uh, yeah it's it's enjoyable it's a nice story uh the guardians are kind of jerks in it but uh it's fun unfortunately things start going downhill after this including a little interlude in the middle where power girl is being a shouting feminazi 
and we get a few pinups of Cat Matui by Joe Phillips and Star Sapphire by Adam Hughes. Then we head right in to the Alan Scott story, which was entitled Meant for Each Other and was written by Ron Mars, penciled by Jim Ballant, inked by Andrew Peepoy, lettered by Albert Guzman, colored by Stuart Chaffetz, and Green Lantern was created by Bill Finger and Martin O'Dell. Alan Scott is trying to plead his case with fellow Justice Society members to say that he is who he actually says he is. Unfortunately, the team isn't buying it, as Alan, as the Alan Scott that they know was an old guy like them, and this Alan Scott is young and muscly. After taking down most of the team, including his good friend Jay Garrick, Alan finds that all of this was an illusion created by Lita Ford. <laughs> Wait, no, sorry. Thought that was Lita Ford, it's... It's Harlequin, who creates a series of pinup scenarios that she and Alan could inhabit and live their lives out in. The, this fantasy slideshow is interrupted by Molly Scott, the actual Harlequin, walking in and cock-blocking Alan. Young Harlequin attacks Molly, causing her to go into shock and calling Alan to engage Harlequin in a little goofy-armored Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Harlequin reveals that she didn't de-age Alan. That was his own doing, and Alan rails against her attempts to steal him away from the love of his life. As the rejected Harlequin vanishes, Alan runs to Molly's side and uses his powers to bring her back to life. You know, I'm kind of glad that we're back to dealing with the love story of Alan and Molly to some extent, but I still didn't get the whole de-aging thing. Uh. The art's nice, though, as you would expect from Jim Ballant, but it is very pinup heavy. In fact, there's about, oh, three or four panels here, which are just basically the same stock shot of Alan Scott and Harlequin hanging off of him, but in different sort of settings. We'll get to that here in a minute. Starting out on page 23, I just want to say, uh, as Alan is fighting the JLA here, Hot Girl looks amazing, but... Her mace is kind of weird. It looks like Thor's hammer, except it's got spikes on the end of it, or on the flats of the uh, hammer. So it's not a traditional-looking mace, uh, from what I would notice, but uh, it is kind of interesting. Plus, you can really see uh, that Alan is pretty much torn through most of the JSA. In fact, in the background, you can see the uh, Ted Knight Starman, you can see the Thunderbolt, uh, Johnny Thunder... Looks like uh, the Adam and Our Man are back there. Hawkman's in the background, knocked out. Wildcat's back there, and Jay Garrick, the Flash, is back there, looking all, all grimacy, kind of upset that Alan's here. So, uh, at least all the JSA members are there. Then uh, we move on to the uh, pinup poses, and page twenty-six is where those start. And the poses are essentially a John Carter type pose. Yeah, the. Alan Scott is John Carter with the sort of curved, not really scimitar, looks more like a saber, and uh, Harlequin in a very ridiculously, I mean, something that even Red Sonia would be embarrassed to wear. Then the uh, next panel is a kind of Dixon Hill private investigator type one with uh, Alan looking a lot, uh, kind of a lot like the spirit, and Molly in a getup that was way too way too slutty for the 1930s type feel. Then on the next page, yes, more pinups. Uh we've got a sort of 90s edition of Buck Rogers with uh Molly is a purple, well, again, ballant, heavily boobed alien and Alan Scott in uh well, a weird-looking space suit. But again, uh Harkening back to the fact that Jim Ballant likes to draw women with boobs, we get on page 29, panel 3, a highly ridiculous-looking outfit for a Harlequin. A very uh, Red Sonia-esque barbarian queen outfit with a, a helm with giant ram horns on it and metal things covering up her breasts. It's just all kind of weird. Uh, I guess it's supposed to be very seductive and a in a titillating type manner, but it's highly impractical, and uh, I don't know, it doesn't do anything for me. Then on page 32, we get another pinup, except this is Alan Scott's angry pinup, where uh, he's in sort of a Conan-esque type stone chair, and Harlequin is uh, 
sort of knelt down in front of him. I guess maybe she's being his footstool or something. That's a weird sort of creepy fetishistic type thing. Also, she's wearing her really 90s, actually more 80s Terminator style sunglasses as well. So it's a, a weird pose. Yeah. Plus, also in the background, I don't know why, it looks like they're ruling over hell or something, because in the background there's demons, and it looks like they're tormenting members of the Teen Titans, because uh, I see definitely that's uh, Starfire in the background, and it looks like uh, uh, Dick Grayson in his Nightwing outfit in the background as well, so don't know why they're there. But that finishes that up, and leads us to another interlude between the books, where we see Power Girl... Uh, doing some bench presses and being just generally a horrible, horrible female stereotype when Aresia interrupts her to tell her about the next Green Lantern tale. And this one is titled Those Who Sit and Wait and was written by Mark, I'm sorry, Mike Barron, penciled by Chaz Trong, inked by Kim DeMolder, lettered by Bob Panaha, and colored by Matt, Pat Mulvihill. On the planet of Nyberg, little Joan Blondell Peabody IV asked the local sheriff, Green Lantern, and Oprah Winfrey impersonator, Martin, to fix her dolly. Why she doesn't just give her a new dolly that was under her seat is beyond me, but whatever. We go on to see that this Green Lantern really doesn't like to do all the Green Lantern-y things because she's Oprah rich and would rather just drink iced tea and feed her mini-elephant spiky dog things. One day, a local farmer asked for aid of Martin to help get rid of the Zaza beast, think alien coyote, who's been eating his animals. Martin reluctantly agrees to help, but she's a crappy Green Lantern who gets sick when she flies and doesn't like to do any fighting. <sighs> but in the end, she relocates the beast away from the farm and saves the day without covering the citizenry with a spray of her vomit as she flies overhead. Dear God, this was an awful story. And not only because the Green Lantern in it was a pudgy Oprah an analog, but the story just sucked. I mean, it makes the school marm story in Green Lantern Quarterly number 4 look like Emerald Dawn. The cartoony art is almost downright racist at times, with Martin having the look of a horrible stereotype of a black female. Big lips, big curly hair, pudgy and short. Ugh, it, it really galls me that I had to read this. This was not a good story, and is probably one of the worst in the Green Lantern Corps quarterly books that I've read so far. Hopefully, hopefully they're only better from here out. However, the last story in the book is a one involving Boudicca, and it's entitled Say It With Powers. This one was written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Scott Collins, inked by Ray Kreising, lettered by Steve Haney, and colored by Tom McCraw. Green Lantern and possible bodybuilding transsexual Boudicca takes out a Conan-esque guard at the front gate of an alien castle with one swing of her ring construct battle axe. The flexing femme looks upward at the highest tower in the castle, the location where the old crone she has come to do battle with resides. After scaling the outer wall and reaching the tower's top, Boudicca dispatches a few more of the guards, all the while holding on to a leather pouch that she's been carrying. Upon reaching the throne room, Boudicca calls out the roided-out queen, and the two engage in some Gina Carino level of McFeitenstein, and some Arnold Schwarzenegger level of quippage. After tossing the severed head of Boudicca's grandmother at her, ugh, the queen grabs the Emerald Warrior around the throat and prepares to choke the life out of her. But before she passes into unconsciousness, Boudicca blasts the queen with ring energy and delivers a final axe blow, ending the combat. However, the queen's life was spared, and as the story ends, we find out that the queen was actually Boudicca's mother. And this was all just their customary way of celebrating Mother's Day. Now, on my first read-through of this, I was really kind of cold on it, but after rereading re it a couple of times, it's it's an okay story. I never glommed onto the character of Boudicca in the uh, Greenland Lantern title, and I never glommed onto her over-to-the-top attitude. 
but in this book, she looks positively feminine next to Power Girl. Ugh, Power Girl is just awful. Colin's artwork is really nice, and all the characters have uh, look like they step right out of a Robert E. Howard book. The dialogue is outrageous, and in fact, they keep the decapitated, desiccated head of their grandmother lying around. And they even kick it around like some sort of creepy soccer ball is really kind of unnerving. But I guess the one thing that kind of redeemed it for me was I can kind of look at this as a kind of akin to a Klingon episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. So then again, I'm letting the whole idea slide. But finally, the book finishes up with Power Girl, marveling that Hal would actually pick women to be in the Greenlander Corps, Arisia hoping to talk with Boudica so she could get reinstated into the Corps, and Chandy asking Arisia to give her some boobies. <sighs> this so far has been the least favorite book of the Greenlander Quarterly books for me. If this is supposed to be empowering to females... I personally think it fails on almost all levels. The only story that I can say was actually really good was the Lara one. And that one was only average. This one did seem to fall into the category of style over substance in the comics of the time, with the 90s art being forefront and the stories being almost afterthoughts. My only hope is that when we get to issue 8, the Bo Smith story helps make up for this issue. But I've Still got a couple of issues to cover before we get to that, so... Well, actually, one more issue to cover that. But next week, I'm going to be taking a break from covering the Green Lantern Corps book, because next week, I'm going to be having not one, but two special guests to cover a couple of books. Next week, we've got Michael Bailey coming in, and Dave Walker coming in to help me with the three-part story, Three of a Kind, featuring not only Green Lantern, but also Green Arrow and The Flash as they take a little cruise, take a vacation, and deal with some of their rogues gallery. And if you know how I feel about the rogues gallery of Green Lantern, you should know that the villains are going to be pretty lame. However, here's an interesting thing. One of the stories is written by Mark Miller and Grant Morrison. Hmm. I think that'll be an interesting discussion nonetheless. So in conclusion, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks everyone for downloading. Make sure you come back next week at 2TrueFreaks.com for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, have a good weekend. We'll see you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Jonathan Colton and his song Chiron Beta Prime off his album Thing A Week 2. Now, you can get this album, of course, through the Amazon link at 2TrueFreaks.com, but probably the best way to help Jonathan Colton out would be to go to his website, JonathanColton.com, and download the song there. Plus, you can also get a myriad other of Jonathan Colton's songs, whether it be 
Baby Got Back, R.E. Your Brains, Shop Vac, the song about Ikea. Jonathan Colton is just an amazing songwriter, and he's sort of like the geek version of Weird Al Yankovic. Well, he's the modern geek version of Weird Al Yankovic. And I do have to say, I contacted Mr. Colton, and he actually had one of his representatives respond back, saying that I could use his song in this in this promo or in this podcast. So thank you, Mr. Colton, for allowing me to use the song. Definitely go check out Jonathan's music. It is just some of the best stuff out there. But if you're going to buy something uh, through Amazon.com, please use the link at 2 But Jonathan Colton is awesome, nonetheless. <laughs> 